Are your personal bathroom needs taking too long? Ruining momentum and annoying your peers? Do you need to carry less weight? Feel fresh and recalibrate yourself. After all, the new generation is very impatient. They just want to get it done quick. Don't keep texting your dad for solutions. We have just the trick. You need Cisapassium. But don't take my word for it. Here is Chief Scientist for Djokovic Pharmaceuticals, Professor Stefanov. The whole game plan has changed. Using patented technology from our Flushing Meadows lab. A very magical place. Cisapassium targets those areas in the gut that make you want to pause when you're feeling at a loss. In the first few minutes, Cisapassium helps you cool down. Then, in minutes four through seven, Cisapassium rids you of sweat and will almost make you feel like a changed man. Then finally, from the eight minute mark and beyond, special enzymes break up your pesky opponent's concentration and allow you to feel fresh, ready for a new set of challenges. Don't get stuck in Alcaraz. With Cisapassium, after three rounds, you'll be able to do whatever you want. Paris, Cincinnati, New York, Greece, Everywhere you can think of, people can't believe Sitsapassium's effectiveness. Kiss those medical timeouts goodbye. Stay regular and win with Sitsapassium. This week on The Sport Blokes. This week, the D's and Dogs will square off for this year's AFL crown. The expected meets the unexpected at Flushing Meadows stories of a different kind of dogs versus cats and our this week in sport goes all the way back to 1869 and the first ever hole in one let's go it's nine o'clock on tuesday the 14th of september as we do at the top every week stewie what caught your attention and what'd you miss well an absolutely cracking week of sport for the aussies including daniel ricardo winning the italian grand prix First win for him since the Monaco Grand Prix in May 2018. Mm. As a long drought. It is. And then you got Quade Cooper playing his first test since 2017 and nailing a penalty goal after the siren to upset the Springboks. So, and if I'm not mistaken, he still hasn't got his citizenship. And he's played a bunch of games for Australia. Hmm. So, yeah, those that are looking forward to Bryce Cotton getting his can maybe sit on their hands for a while. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. Also saw a very interesting NFL stat this week, Nate. Oh, Yes. The winner of the Super Bowl in 2016 was the New England Patriots who had a bye in week nine. Right. Well, the 2016 season, they actually officially won it in 2017, but it was the 2016 season. Oh, because it starts, yeah, yeah. Yep. It goes across multiple years given it starts in September, yes. Yep. yep. The following year, the Philadelphia Eagles won the Super Bowl. They had their bye in week 10. The okay. following year, it was the Patriots again. Their bye was round 11. Okay. The Kansas City Chiefs won it in 2019. Their bye was round 12. And last season, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers won it. No prizes for guessing when their bye was. Round 13. Okay. The four teams with buys in round 14 this season. The Patriots, the Eagles, the Dolphins, and your Indianapolis Colts. Well, I can tell you that trend will end this year. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> no, 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 none of those teams are winning the Super Bowl. Could you imagine? I know there's, there's people think the Patriots might be all right, but they're not winning the Super Bowl. I think $26 was the best any of those four teams yeah, was paying. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah probably not going to happen, but no, still. No, it's not going to happen, but it's an interesting start. Cool little trend. It is, it is. So, Stewie, stoke the NFL's back. We don't have much time to talk about it today, but I'll try not to think about the fact that Ezekiel Elliott, the first pick in my fantasy team, didn't even manage to score five points bloody cowboys 
But there's some really interesting stuff. So blokes handed the keys. Jalen Hurts, Trevor Lawrence, and Tua Tagovailoa had some mixed results. Uh, really interesting stuff across the board there, really. Trevor Lawrence had a real mixed bag. Three touchdowns, a lot of yards, but also three interceptions. And the first ever regular season loss for him in his entire life. Yes, I saw that on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. Old faces, new places. Jared Goff and Matt Stafford both had pretty good games. I reckon that Rams team could be pretty damn good. And how's this? The Green Bay Packers with Aaron Rodgers, they got to cop a lot of heat. Obviously, there was a lot of off-season stuff going on with Rodgers. We've talked about a little bit here and there. The prevailing thought is, oh, well, they'll just get on the paddock and have a win against the Saints who don't have Drew Brees anymore. Oh, no, 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 no. The Packers did not have a good game at all. Jameis Winston became the first quarterback in the modern era to throw five touchdowns with less than 150 yards passing. It is quite remarkable. I'll stop here, though, for you, Stewie, because I know you love a good name. The Philadelphia Eagles have a running back called Kenneth Gainwell. Hmm. It's all about gaining yards. Yeah, so, well, yeah, that's, that's, that's a very apt name. And he did have a touchdown against Atlanta, so he did gain well. And props to Kyle Murray, actually the first Cardinal since Kurt Warner in 2010 with five touchdowns. Yes, indeed. Yes, they had a very impressive win. And I do have DeAndre Hopkins on my team, so that was good. Yeah, but he didn't get all the touchdowns. No, well, I was playing against Kyle Murray. Hmm, no oh dear. Now, a bit of a disappointing story to come out of the Olympics. Algerian judoka Fethi Noreen has been banned for 10 years for withdrawing from his event. Oh, yeah, I saw this today. So basically, it looked like he might come up in the second round against Israel's Toha Butbul, I believe it's pronounced. But he found because of his political stance on Palestine that he wouldn't be able to compete in that. So he's decided I'm going to withdraw it, not put myself in that situation. We always say mixing politics and sport never works, but surely that's too harsh a penalty. Ten years. It's a pretty big penalty, but really, you should... You should be able to fight a bloke, even if you don't agree with the state of Palestine. Like, is it that person's fault that you should be able to still fight them? Oh, I mean, I agree he probably should have, but look, this is the thing. We don't yeah, we don't understand yeah, I mean, the, the stance that he that he's yeah, taking. Yeah, this was on my shortlist and I actually forgot about it actually. I mean, ten but, years basically ends his career. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cause he was he was what, 30, was it? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, look, well, he stood by his convictions. Apparently he'd done it previously too. In another uh, meet. I think he claimed he was injured, but that was BS. Yeah. Yeah, well. Yeah. No, it's that's a very interesting one. It is. And lastly, I noticed that the ICC Women's T20 World Cup Africa region qualifiers are on. No real surprises. There have been some pretty low scores so far. <laughs> yes, yes. So Mozambique was bowled out for 17 in the first match of the series, thanks to a blistering 10 from sundries. <laughs> That's not a name, by the way. No, that was That's extras. <laughs> that is that is a lot of wides. Yeah. Rwanda chased that down off 2.1 overs. So mm. great win for them. Indeed. Uh, Eswatini, a little landlocked country inside South Africa, for those who aren't geographically inclined, made 29 against Botswana, then followed it up by being bowled out for 17 with extras, their top scorer on seven against Zimbabwe. And then they made 19, chasing 204 against Rwanda. So not a great uh, great series for no, SRT. a bit unbalanced yeah. uh, some of those teams. But great to see them competing. And the only way you can get better is by playing teams better than you. Exactly so, right. And yeah. to top it all off, Cameroon seamer Maeva Duma mancatted not one, not two, not three, but four Ugandan batters. I'm just disappointed it wasn't three, so we could use the word thrice. Mm, this is very true. Mm. Four or five. Is it man-catted in women's cricket or is it woman-catted? Woman-catted. <laughs> okay, run out. <laughs> what is yeah, I don't yeah. even know what. But it's not run out. It's slightly different. What, what, Have we ever talked about the man-cat? Well, I was actually going to ask you if you're okay with it. I am. Yeah. I'm absolutely okay with yep. it. Why Why should a batter be advantaged by being able to back up with no repercussions? 
So there are a lot of unwritten codes in sport, and I do actually agree with some of them. But the man count, I just don't get. I really don't. I, I think if you're out of your crease and the bowlers sees it, then why not? Absolutely. Yeah. No, I agree. I don't Especially see... in T20, they're trying to get a lot of runs. And so yeah. often people are backing up half the pitch. It's not fair. Yeah, I, I don't see a massive difference between that and a stumping. Yeah. Yep. Or a run out for that yep. matter. It's like, well, oh, but, you know, I was only a little bit out of the crease. Well, so what? You're out. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. No, I don't have a problem with it at all. I know we're probably in the minority there as cricket fans. Yeah. But, you know, I'm a traditionalist in many, many, many ways, but the man cat is not one of them. Yeah, but we're traditionalists as long as it doesn't involve cheating, which is what that is. Or we caught the 100, <coughs> six ball overs. <coughs> yep. Pretty nasty cough then. Yeah, mate. I know. Yeah. Well, I have had my second jab, so it's not good. Yeah. How did that go? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Be prepared, people. If you haven't had that second jab, that was worse than my last five hangovers. It was not a pleasant day the day after. To use a cricket term, it hit you for six. It certainly did. It really mm. did. But the day after that, I was fine. Mm. So it was just a 24-hour thing and it was worth it. I'm glad I did it. Yep. Roll up WA and others. Well done. And I should say, I feel like we don't say often enough, we are absolutely feeling for everyone in lockdown, no matter where you might be, Australia or otherwise. We know it's a really tough time. We can only imagine. We've only had a few tiny little lockdowns. We, we can't. It's hard for us to... to sympathize but we can definitely empathize and our hearts go out to everyone in in these difficult times too true how about yourself mate a couple of things Shuri. the victor belfort evander holyfield fight was a complete fuss did you call it a fight well yeah i mean it, it was commentated by donald trump so the whole yes, thing was an absolute was, joke it was a farce but evander's in his 50s the fight was actually moved to florida because other states refused to hold it because of the safety concerns. So the whole thing, it never should have even gone ahead. And that's move it earlier in the day so he could get to bed by 4 p.m. <laughs> that's not fair. Uh, that's dear. not fair at all. He would still knock us out. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and then the other one's a good story. So Connor McKenna left the AFL, played for Essendon, obviously, and was the patient X of COVID, unfortunately, in the AFL world, and then turned out to not be the patient X because <laughs> it was a false positive. But he's gone back and he's won the All-Ireland Championship with Tyrone. So good on him. Tyrone who? Uh, that's the name of the county. Tyrone Nesby. Yeah, I probably didn't say it right. But Tyrone Nesby. <laughs> yeah. There's a bloke I haven't thought about. I actually liked him. Yeah. LA Clippers. Yeah. He was yeah. a handy little big guy. In, 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 yeah, he was, probably wasn't he, that good at was, all. No, he was all Was right. he a swing man? Big yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah swing, kind yeah. of a big, a- small athletic, fork, power forward. Athletic yeah. swing man. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Tyrone Nesby. Look, what, him, look him up. What'd you miss, mate? Well, sadly, when you live in Australia, seeing the finals of the US Open is nigh on impossible to do live. I did manage to wake up in time for the last game of the men's final. and What a surprise that was. It, it was, and it wasn't at the same time. I think the way it happened was, I'm not surprised that Medvedev won it. Um, and we'll sort of talk a little bit more yes, about this we'll later. We will get there. But I tell you what, the mind does weird things to you when you're in a deep sleep. So I woke up, I, something woke me up. I think it was a noise from outside and I looked at my phone and I could see that there was a little update about the game and I thought, oh, I'll see what's happened. And it was very early in the first set and it was 2 nothing to Medvedev. I'm thinking, oh, sweet. That's, Already a break, that's, yeah. That's brilliant. Yep. And so I put my phone back down, nodded off and I had the most vivid dream that I picked my phone up again about half an hour later and Djokovic had won the first set 7-5 which clearly it was a dream because he lost his straight Absolutely not the case. Yeah. So when I, I woke up at 6.30, picked my phone up again, and I saw the score and I thought, hang on, what's happened here? How did he go from losing the first set to winning it? 
I don't understand. Yeah, it was a real mess up. No, I'm just, <laughs> but I'm I'm glad the result went the way it did. It was uh, it's good for tennis. And we will certainly talk about that. There's a lot of fascinating stuff to come out of there the US is. Open. How about yourself, Mike? Well, I missed saying a big thank you to Dan and Guy that have helped us. Well, Dan particularly has helped us throughout the journey with all our pictures and music and helped us with those ads. <laughs> One of my friends actually didn't realise those ads were fake. Yes, they are fake ads. <laughs> I guess people are so used to fast-forwarding ads in podcasts. Yeah, that true. No, there is no such thing as Fox condoms. Um, so <laughs> not, not yet. <laughs> so, so, uh, it's, it's been remiss of me to not thank them once again. So please check out the description for Dan's links and that sort of thing to his social media. So I, I apologize for missing that the last few weeks, but I also missed the second half. Well, basically the second half of the dogs and power. It was my girlfriend's birthday. We're out at the pub. We watched the first half and then more and more people started arriving and the view of the screen got more and more obscured. And I'll be honest, if it had been a close game, I would have paid more attention, but what a shellacking, and we'll get to that shortly. A Saturday game of footy I actually saw. Yeah, well, there you go. There you go. Go me. (laughs) Probably wish you saw a better one. Wow. And now, what made Stu say bloody hell? Well, we missed out on a Cats and Dogs grand final in the AFL, but I have a bloody hell this week that involves both a cat and a dog. Mm. So the first story belongs to one of the best cricket pitch invaders of all time. Take notes, Jarvo. <laughs> In the All-Ireland Women's T20 semi-final between Breedy Cricket Club and Civil Service North of Ireland Cricket Club. Cracking name, that. My favourite team. So CSNI batter Abby Leckie puts one down towards third man and takes off looking for two. There's a shot at the stumps, which the keeper fields a couple of metres away from the actual stumps themselves. She then tries to throw them down and misses. Flying in off the boundary, though, came what looks like a cocker spaniel who picks the ball up at full tilt, then dodges a couple of fielders before running to the non-striker's end for belly rubs. (laughs) Yeah, with the little kid with the leash. Yeah. (laughs) Safe to say the dog well and truly broke COVID protocols and the ball needed a damn good clean after that. (laughs) Some people are already calling online for a Doggo World Cup and finding out when that will be. And with feeling like that, I am all in on that. Absolutely. Yeah, you've seen the plugger pig. Now it's the cricket dog. Well, the dog, the the I say the hands in inverted commas, like the pickup was yeah. just <laughs> clean. so clean. And the ball was not clean afterwards. No, no, no. Would have been easier to shine, though, with all that slobber. Yeah. <laughs> There's a couple of nations out there that would, uh, mind you, as you say. Yeah, glass houses. Glass houses. Glass houses. Move on. Now, the second story belongs to one of the luckier cats around. At the college football match between Miami and Appalachian State, one of the fans decided to video the players coming out of the tunnel, but inadvertently filmed a cat clinging onto a rope for dear life. Oh, yeah. Kind of like one of those hang-in-there posters that you see, those motivational ones. Yes, yes. And I've seen someone already do the Photoshop of Cliffhanger, the, the movie, the cover. Yeah. Very nice. So this cat was hanging, God, I don't know, 40 feet in the air, when it suddenly lost its grip and plummeted into the crowd, they managed to catch it, but the ordeal was not over for yeah. the fortunate feline. They caught it with an American flag. Like hats off. Yeah. They had the presence of mind to unfurl the flag and much like someone dro- jumping out of a burning building, the cat. Yeah. It was very impressive until. Well, this is the thing. Yeah. When the cats landed, it looked like someone falling into a crowd of walkers from the walking dead. Like, oh man. Everyone just. These idiots just trying to get a hold of the cat and hold it up like Simba from The Lion King. Yeah. And this cat just wanted to be anywhere else. And I've got to be honest, I actually watched the video a few times to try and make sure that it was a real cat and it wasn't the whole thing a stunt and they pulled up a fake one. 
Because, but it was terrifying. This cat was scratching and clawing oh. anywhere it could. The funniest thing for me was you can see a lady in the background who has this horrific look on her face and she jumps the bar. And unfortunately, the video ends, but I can almost guarantee she's jumped the bar to tell the blokes, what the fuck are you doing? You're going to strangle that poor cat. Yeah. Like, you can't just save its life and then kill it two seconds later. Like, yeah. bloody hell. Literally. Literally. Yeah. yeah. So, for letting your dog tear in for a run out chance and the luckiest pussy around. <laughs> All I can say is, <laughs> barky meow, a bloody hell. Bloody hell. So, Stewie, they say the prelim round is the best round in the AFL calendar, and this week it was not the case. Wah, wah. For the most part, there were some very <laughs> impressive uh, performances. But I just wanted to go back to last week first, before we get into this, this week's games. So there was this weird thing where, and look, we talked about it ourselves. Adam Trelaw did not look great against Brisbane. Mm -hmm. He didn't show a lot of effort at times and he played like shit, basically. I don't think he even had a touch in the first quarter, maybe even the first half. He was very poor. Yeah, he sold. Now, Beveridge came out and look, absolutely a coach should defend their players. Completely fair enough. But talk about going over the top. A little bit, yeah. I mean, listen to this and I, and I quote, if you're going to fail in life, fail at something that is noble. Fail at something you can dust yourself off and be proud that you had a go. If you're failing at trying to pull people apart and bring people down, like two or three journalists did this week, I don't know how many people around you can live with you, how they can lie in bed with you, how they can look at themselves in the mirror. So he's basically said to those journos, I don't know how your husband or wife can sleep next to you because you said that a player looked like he didn't show enough effort and was sucking. Mm. I hate to think what Beveridge would think if they killed someone. Well, yeah, this is... <laughs> We're talking about overreaction. It's, it's, yeah, it's ridiculous. Uh, look, it's been pretty well documented that this is a lot going after... The theory is cane corns. And, and one of the things was, uh, you know, it, just name them by name if you're referring to two or three journalists. Yeah. Well, that, and that was what Corn said. Yeah. Uh, very, very quick to point that out on, uh, on the round so far. And... Yeah, it, it is. It's a pretty disgraceful comment in terms of going after someone's significant other. There's just no need for that. Like, I get, as you say, that he's got to defend his player, but he's also got to understand that that footballer has a job. And guess what? So do the media. Yeah, exactly. They're just doing their job. Yeah. They're not going to sit there and, you know, puppies and rainbows and glitter and sparkles. Like, it's not everything is not great. Sometimes things happen that aren't great and you've got to point it out. And and sometimes media people do go over the line, but this isn't even close. No. Like, this is calling out a bloke that had a bad game and maybe wasn't showing enough effort. Hmm. Like, yeah, I found that all very weird. Now, clearly the bunker mentality is working for the dogs. They... Travelled, as we said last week, to all corners of Australia. They weren't able to train in Adelaide. This us against them thing seems to be working. It worked for them in 2016 when they won their first flag in a long, long, long time. So who knows? Maybe it will work again. But let's. I, I, I don't know. It looked like a bit of a training run. Well, and that's it's funny. That was all over Twitter, apparently. But let's start chronologically and let's start with the game we went to. We were lucky enough to get tickets after some troubles that I mentioned last week. Now, I didn't actually go into the specifics. And I didn't know that you had to have names and contact details available. Now, when you're trying to buy seven tickets and the ticket only is held for like three minutes, it's very hard to get that information when you don't already have it ready. Mm. So I nearly, well, I did miss out on tickets, but luckily our friend managed to get some through his Dockers membership. Thank God for that, because that would have been a very shitty reason 
to miss out on one of the great performances of all time, Maxi Gorn, Oh My God. But before we get into that, of course, I said the D's by 21. You said the D's by 12. The truth was much, much more. Melbourne, 19 goals, 11, 125, defeating Geelong, 6 goals, 6, 42. And I'll tell you what, Geelong were lucky to get that late goal by Jeremy Cameron. They nearly had a goalless half in a prelim. Amazingly, not the biggest finals loss ever for Geelong, though. They lost their first semi-final in 1969 to Richmond by 118. <sighs> but yeah, this is actually the fourth time in the last six seasons the Cats have trailed by at least four goals at quarter time in a do-or-die final. Mm, pretty damning. Sydney smashed them seven goals to nothing in 2016. Adelaide six goals to one in 2017. Five goals to nothing for Melbourne in 2018. And seven goals to one this year. Mm. Not good reading. Mm. Always the bridesmaids. And we were stuck behind the goals with all the Geelong supporters who were... Well, that was a fascinating experience, wasn't it? A lot, a lot of crying and a lot of moaning. There was, we were in the Geelong cheer squad and it was, it's, it's a fascinating kind of thing. But can we take the step back a little bit? So a couple of things. The 5.50 start was a real struggle for me. Oh. We were lucky to get in our seats about maybe a minute and a half in. You guys were lucky. I you just it, got I, in. I got I in three seconds before bounce down. Yeah, so we got in the stadium in, in time, but by the time we got from the gate we entered to our seats, we'd missed the beginning. As we were walking around, I, we saw on the tellies that Ben Brown had taken a mark, and then we heard this noise, and I'm like, he's hit the post. And they're like, how do you know? You, you can't see. I'm like... That sound is he's hit the post. And sure enough, he had. Like You just know when crowds make certain reactions. Yeah. yeah, walking in, people dressed in their full garb from head to toe, wearing other teams' colours with scarf, hat and shirt and pants. And I don't like it. Mm. I don't like it. Yeah. yeah. And we did talk about this a bit at the game. but And you were like, oh, Nath, were you listening to the exchange blokes or something? And, and I wasn't actually. But it's because I'd seen a few people around the traps walking in and I just bristled. There's no way I'd wear my Swan stuff if the Swans weren't playing. Mm. Yeah, it was mentioned on the Exchange podcast, and they were talking about that. And one one of the guys came up with this really great line that if you are old enough to have at least your L plates, then you are too old to be wearing any of that sort of stuff. I like that as a rule. If you're 14, 15, or under, fair enough. Yeah, go nuts. But yep. yeah, when you see people in their 50s and 60s, yeah, and I did. It, it, it's not a great look. It's just weird. And it's it's almost a bit of an up yours. Like, obviously, okay, yes, we were neutral fans, but we're not going to do an up yours of, hey, like people in Perth watching at home that are Diesel or Cats fans that tried to get tickets. I'm in my full Eagles gear. And you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, just, it's just weird. It, it, no, you're right. Though. It is a bit of a middle finger. Um, and then the other thing, now this is classic. I heard people talking about where they were sitting and someone was like, oh, I'm in block 502, so I'll be as high as Nadia Bartel. Oh, <laughs> allegedly. Yeah, well, yeah, jeez. Oh, yeah. It's not even news. Yeah. It's not even news. Well, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so that was an interesting experience. But it was a very interesting experience sitting in the cheer squad. And as you say, it was funny, that bloke that was like to the bitter end and they'd clearly, you know, they were nearly losing by 100. And he's like, tackle! He was almost like begging them, tackle, for God's sake. Tackle. Come on, Tom Hawkins, do something! <laughs> like... Do what? Kick 15 goals in, yeah, exactly. in 10 minutes. And I'm being harsh. Like, he saved the day for them last week. Yeah. He played bloody well in the match against GWS. So, okay, you know. Like, he probably picked the wrong target, to be fair. Like, Hawkins was probably the only one in the forward line that tried. Yeah, well, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and no one played well across the board, did they? I mean, Gary Rowan is the whipping boy, but he wasn't the only crap player. Like, the whole team was shit. Can I just quickly say that? I did see a very, very funny meme about him. They were saying he should be fined, what is it, $10,000 because spectators aren't allowed on the field? Yes. 
Yes, you sent that one through to us. He had one possession more than you and I did, mate. Yeah. That's not good enough. Yeah, no. Not good enough. No, it's not great. But there would be a number of players that would have been in that boat, I think. He is a renowned speedster, and he got chased down and tackled to the ground by By Max Gorn. By a bloke we're about to speak about. Oh, but he played the game of his life, let's face it. Absolutely. And what an incredible story. Like, what did I, I saw recently, he's had two or three ACLs at the beginning of his career. He's actually been knocking around for 10 years. You kind of forget that Mm. because his career was so stunted. But wow. So he's kicked 11 goals all season to that point. Bob's up with five for the game, four in the third quarter alone, including this crazy snap from the boundary after a bounce down. Oh, yeah. Just taking it out of the ruck and snapping. And then the one from outside 52, looking like a mid. Yep. Oh, my God. That play. What a performance. That play was worked so perfectly. Oh, so good. But I think what impressed me the most from where we were sat was his mobility around the ground. And you think back to some of these other guys, you know, guys like Dean Cox, for example, is, is one as an Eagles fan who stands out as someone who really gets around the ground and, and makes the most of his time. But he was in defense, spoiling Tom Hawkins early. He was tackling Gary Rowan, as we mentioned, when the game was already over. Yeah, there was a few Melbourne blokes playing still very hard after the game, wasn't it? I'll tell you a very interesting stat. Okay. Max Gorn had six tackles for the game. No one else had more than three. Wow. Wow. So that says as much for Maxi as it does for how poor and open the contest was by Geelong. But yeah, this was absolutely the game of his life. Oh, fantastic. And you kind of hope that he hasn't wasted his great I know. Well, we, we talked about that when we were sitting in our seats, but it couldn't happen to a better guy. Got to love the Maxi going. I, we've made no bones that we are going for Melbourne in the grand final. So, yeah. but I hope it's a close one. Yeah. So one of the other things I did kind of want to talk about was the way the game was kind of set up early and it wasn't really the guys we were expecting. I think we were all expecting Petrarca and Oliver to be the ones dominating right from the opening bounce down, but it was Christian Salem and Jack Viney. They were the guys that really set the tone early. They dominated through the square. And Viney had a very good game. Viney had a sensational game and, and Salem, okay, yeah, he kind of calmed down a little bit later on in the game. But yeah, he had double-figure possessions in the first quarter, and so did Viney. And it was pretty much one halfway through the second anyway, wasn't it? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. And Because this is the thing. That's when Oliver and Petrarca really came to the fore. And Petrarca seemed like he barely had an opponent for most of the game. There was a lot of open blokes, yeah, too early in the match. Well, yeah. There was one very, very early in the game, and I remember this one in particular, where there was a, there was a stoppage, and Petrarca was being manned up by Selwood and there would have been four metres between them. Gorn's basically put it straight down Petrarca's throat, bombed it inside 50 to Ben Brown for, I think, one of the first goals of the game for Melbourne. So it was, it was just an absolute domination. And speaking of that, 101 points from stoppages in the game. Wow, really? Gee. That is the fourth most ever. Yeah. So, yeah, obviously we always talk about how good the top players are for, for Melbourne. If you look at the guys like Gorn, Petrarca, Oliver, you know, to a lesser extent, Viney, Salem and Brayshaw, their top end players are playing at such a high level right now, but they're also getting it from other guys. Cozzy Pickett was superb. He was excellent. Yep. Ben Brown had multiple goals. Bailey Fritch was the same. They all just did this amazing job. Charlie Spargo. We, yeah, he was excellent. Yeah, we mentioned him a number of times. We, we mentioned him yeah. more times in that first half than we've probably mentioned him all season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. So it, it was very much a training drill. And I'll tell you one thing. I spoke a few weeks ago in episode 63, Jarvo from the nursery end, about Geelong's first quarters. Yeah, it's, yeah, it was. And I said to you, do you see there being 
like a five goal to one or a four goal to one first quarter that just blows away any chance of them in a final. And sure enough, seven goals to one in yeah, the first. Yeah. So basically the only minor concern is whether or not Stephen May will pull up with a hammy, but he should be fine by the looks of it. He's gone on the record and said he's fine. Yeah. So I don't see any issue with that. For Geelong though, like, have you seen them look so uncertain of their next move? So fumbly, so lacking direction. It was very un like for a team that many thought would win the premiership this year mm. and were absolutely one of the top teams. Yeah. yeah. They, very disappointing. They were poor. Now there's been all this talk about, oh, but Geelong actually had this virus concern going through their camp up to the two days prior to the game. And there were guys like Cam Guthrie, Tom Hawkins. Yeah, Jeremy big Cameron. names. Yeah, six players apparently. But you can't produce that sort of filth in a prelim. 57 marks for the game, 42 inside 50s. And as I said, nearly a goal a second half. Yes, very nearly. Yeah. And cr- look, credit to Scotty. He didn't use it as an excuse, I don't think. And neither he should. Yeah, yeah. Neither he should. Do you think Geelong regresses next season? Well, it's a really interesting one, isn't it? They're very much like the Eagles. Absolutely. They're like, do you go all in? Like, it's tricky because Isaac Smith, I think, was one of their better players, but he's one of their older players too. So at what point do you say, oh, we need to bring in youth? I'll put it into perspective. So you've got Tom Hawkins and you've got Joel Selwood who are about to turn 34. And Selwood gave away a pretty bad 50 when the game was teetering, wasn't it? But it was a flop. Oh, look, I, I think the free should have gone to Selwood in the first place. But anyway. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah. We, we can't wait down Warren for that it, No, no, no. It was one of those things where, where it rains at pause yeah. and the Melbourne player, I can't remember who it was, flopped. But yeah, no, they're getting on. They're getting on. But Zach Tui's 31 now. Yep. He'll be 32, I think, by the time next season starts. They had 10 of their 23 players that played over the weekend that, that are 30 or older. That is oh the, the I saw the list of games of experience for the remaining final four teams and Geelong almost had more than the other three combined, I think. Mm. They yeah, yeah. Towered it's, over them. It's worrying. Their, it is, their it is, young it list, is. their young list does not look good. They don't have much in the way of draft picks. It's I think Geelong could be finally about to head down that ladder. It's tricky. They I think like the Eagles, they probably roll the dice on one more season, but that's you know, is that one season removed from a rebuild that needs to happen. Mm. Who knows? Yeah. So in the other game, Shui, we will weigh off. Bont did play, so your tip was Port by 17. I said Port by 27. It was very, very different indeed. Port by negative 71. <laughs> <laughs> Doggies, 17 goals, 14, 116. Defeating the power, 6 goals, 9, 45. The biggest margin for victory for a prelim weekend ever. With yes. both games yep. combined, yeah. So 1995 was the previous record when Geelong beat Richmond by 89 and Carlton beat North Melbourne by 62. That was 151 combined. We got to 154. Yep. This one, I think, was actually more impressive than the previous night's game. I just couldn't believe... I was continually shaking my head in that first quarter where they just kicked goal after goal after goal. And it's like, holy shit. This one might be over earlier than last night's game was. And I didn't think that was even possible. Mm. Yeah. So a few things, I guess. The presence of Bontempelli is huge. Just having him in that lineup is massive for the dogs. And he was moving well in training after we recorded. Like I was really worried about him having seen the injury and the aftermath of the Lions game. But in training, he looked great. So I'm not surprised he looked great He's in the game. Basically done a Giannis. Yeah. Well, just painkillers, injections. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well. <laughs> but yeah, again, we always talk about how ballistic the midfield go. That's fine. 
but they got smashed in the hit outs again, 49 to 24, but they still win the clearances. 41 to 30. Yeah, they must be very good at roving the other Ruckman. Well, that's what happens. They, yeah. they just they always seem to win the clearances. And if you talk about the number one clearance guy in the entire competition with Tom Liberatore, Jack McRae's third, this is what the Western Bulldogs are really good at. Their clearance possession game is brilliant. Trelaw had a comeback game too. Trelaw played brilliantly. He yep. was breaking the lines. He actually looked like he wanted to be there. But it was just, yeah, as soon as the ball hit the ground, their hands were so clean like they always are, but they tackle hard. They just, they set it up from the opening bounce. Plus 23 in contested possessions in the first quarter, plus nine in clearances. They just smashed them. And when Port wins the contested footy, they win the game. 17-0 and all season. And they didn't get near it. Port at home. Again, another prelim at home. Talk about missed opportunities. Mm. I mean, some of their, like they have some very good young players in Rosie, Dersmer and stuff. But then when you think of guys like Boak, they're not spring chickens. No. Their window will close soon too. So it's very disappointing. I can't imagine how hard it must have been sitting in the crowd as a Port fan over there. I've heard a lot of people refer to Port Adelaide as downhill skiers, basically. <laughs> so like when they got the momentum, they are impossible to stop. So what else can we say about the dogs? We're going to go back to Bailey Smith. Oh, yeah. Well, was what, he was seven he, goals in the finals in the last two in the games, last couple yeah. of weeks? Yeah. Yep. So yep. four goals, 23 touches. Is he a lock for all Australia next year, do you think? Uh if he stays healthy, he'd be right up there. He's, he's certainly in a purple patch of form, isn't he? Like, and and I tell you what, those those memories of the poor form they had at the end of the home and away season are long gone now. I mean, you and I both picked Essendon. Yeah. We're not afraid to admit when we're wrong. We no, were way off. We were way off. We were. Yeah. So I think with Bailey Smith, the thing that's impressing me the most is just his engine. He runs so hard from contest to contest. It doesn't you've you've really got to, if you're a Melbourne supporter, hope that they're going to be putting someone on him with a very, very big tank because he is just going to keep running. And, you know, he's just part of what was a very dominant forward line for the dogs. I mean, Josh Shackey had three. He took Aliralea out of the game entirely. Yeah, that's that's been the big tip of the weekend, wasn't it? Complete, that Shackey destroyed Aliralea. Complete non-factor. Yeah. Mitch Hannon had three. Aaron Norton had a lazy two. Like, do you want to know how many times that Port Adelaide gave up eighty in an entire game all season was? Wouldn't have been many. Five. Yeah. Yep. They gave that up in the first half, and it's only the third time all year they've given up a hundred points. Yeah. Once to the Eagles. Woo. Yeah. <laughs> One of the few good games we've played all year. <laughs> But I've got a question I want to pose to you. Do you think this would be a more impressive win than 2016? Do you know what? I think maybe it would. It's tricky because obviously the burden of expectation when the monkey's on your back for like 70 odd years is huge. But the fact that they couldn't even train. I mean, did the South Australian government hand them the victory? Did that give them the the wherewithal they needed, the anger and that bunker mentality I talked about? Was that what? gave them that inspiration to have a big win because they bought a gun to a knife fight and Port were not ready. They, they bought a bazooka. A gun. Yeah, yeah. They a, drove a tank. A to fucking a, tank. Yeah, 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 to a knife fight. So, so given the COVID stuff, maybe, yeah, I think you could make a very strong case it would be more impressive. Yeah, I agree. Five states in 14 days. You could say for that very reason alone. But, yep. you know, I've heard people say, oh, yeah, but they won it from seventh in 2016. They had a bye week to settle into Perth before they destroyed the Eagles in 2016. They played at home, essentially, in beating the Hawks. Their trip to Sydney to beat the Giants in the prelim was impressive. 
But that was then, a huge game. But, I remember that one. Then they had a home final against the Swans. Yeah, well, and, that, and that's right. Who that's finished right. top of the ladder. So, yeah. And there's a lot of people that kind of are talking about Melbourne and the dogs not getting to play in Melbourne. But it's like, well, if you look at the grand finalists from the last decade, there are a lot of interstate teams that didn't get to play at home who finished higher on the ladder. Exactly. So, exactly. yeah, the rest of Australia isn't too uh, sympathetic to that. No, no, we'll find a small violin. <laughs> Now, one of the other things I did speak about in one of our previous episodes was the importance of some of the smalls for Port Adelaide. So guys that had played really well earlier in the finals, Horacio Fantasia, Shannon Motlop, those guys played really, really well in the earlier finals. They had six touches apiece and combined for one behind, Mm. which is not great. I mean, Fantasia was injured, in fairness. But he played, so you well, expect it. him to perform when you when someone's in the team. Yeah, if you're on yeah. the park, you've got to be. Yeah. you've got to be there. Otherwise, you've got to do your job. Yeah, otherwise take the week off. Yeah, I mean, Ollie Wines probably did as much as he could, 38 touches and a goal. But when you get dominated in the center of the park, and I guess I should probably go back and say they did get dominated by the guys on the floor. Stefan Martin did a serviceable job against Scotty Lysette. Didn't necessarily beat him in the hitouts, but I think he did a, a pretty decent job for someone who hasn't played in what probably 20 weeks. Oh, a long time, at least half a season. Yeah. Hey, it, it gives them options, though. It, I think Martin's a good a good player to have in the side, mm. and he'll be in the granny too. So the second consecutive year that both losers in the prelim have only kicked six goals, and the second straight year that one of those teams is Port Adelaide. So mm. we have a replay of the 1954 grand final with Melbourne and the Dogs. Ah, the last time the Dogs won before 2016. Mm-hmm. Oh, very good. I dare say Bulldogs supporters would want to replay that. Footscray winning 102-51. to 51. Now, as much as I love tipping everything and anything that I can get my hands on, <laughs> we will hold off for a week. Yes, well, we'll be silly not to. Just in case something happens, but we yeah. will give everyone our tip on what we think is going to happen next week. Indeed, we will. And now, this week in sport history. September 15, 1946, the Brooklyn Dodgers beat the Chicago Cubs 2-0 in five innings. <laughs> this was the second game of a doubleheader, with the game being called off because of an infestation of gnats. It happens. Yeah. Nat King Cole and um, other people named yeah. Nat. Natalie and Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> this is long before she was born. Anyway, fans, they've tried unsuccessfully to shoo the insects away with their scorecards, but in the end, the Nats impaired the visions of the players and umpires so severely it was deemed to be putting their safety at risk. The game was ruled in the same way as a game that was rained out and the Dodgers were deemed to have won. Nat exactly fair. Yeah, I see what you did there. September 16, 1869, young Tom Morris achieves golf's first recorded hole-in-one at Prestwick Country Club in Scotland as part of his first round at the Open. Fun fact, Prestwick actually hosted the first 12 Open Championships, 12 being the lucky number there because the course only had 12 holes. Morris would win the tournament by 11 shots and take out the winner's check for a big six pounds, defending his title from the previous year when he finished three shots clear of his father, old Tom Morris. Young Tom won at just 17 years of age, still the record for the youngest major champion in PGA history. He also won the following year in 1870 by 12 shots, one short of the open record held by, you guessed it, his father from the 1862 Open. Unfortunately, the story of young Tom Morris is a tragic one. In 1975, he was out on the course when he received word that his wife was going through a difficult labour. And unfortunately, by the time he was able to make the short journey home, his wife and child had already passed away. Four months later, on Christmas of all days, he passed away from a pulmonary hemorrhage himself 
he was just a few months shy of his 25th birthday. Yeah, that's one of those real what-ifs in golf. You know, had, yeah. had he been able to live until he was 50, God knows how many majors he would have won in that time. That's a good point. It's, it's a really fascinating story, even just looking at the golf courses. You know, Some of them had 22 holes, some of them had 12. It was just like Interesting. put a bunch of numbers in a how big. Hat. How big was your lot of land and how many holes? Yeah, could, yeah. exactly. It's yeah. how drunk did you get while you were planning it, basically. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a, it's a crazy one, the, the story of young Tom Morrison. Yeah, real tragedy. September 17th, 1961, Fran Tarkenton of the Minnesota Vikings plays his first NFL game against the Chicago Bears, coming off the bench in a 37-13 victory, one of the biggest upsets in the history of the league. The Vikings had actually played the Bears in a preseason game and absolutely had their pants pulled down. I think they went into that game as a 28-point favourite and ended up getting beaten 37-13. to We interestingly spoke last week about the Vikings winning their first ever game as a franchise, which was actually this game. Veteran George Shaw started the game, but late in the first quarter hadn't completed a single first down, so Tarkington was inserted into the game and ended up becoming the first quarterback in NFL history to throw for four touchdowns in his first career game. He also rushed for one. He managed a passer rating of 148.6, which is incredibly high. The next five games, though, didn't go quite as well for Tarkington. Zero touchdowns and seven interceptions in five double-figure losses. Mm. It was actually really hard to find a list of other players who had managed to complete four touchdowns in their first game. The only player I could find was Marcus Mariota, who threw four touchdowns with a perfect passer rating of 158.3 in a 42-14 Tennessee Titans win over the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And the crazy thing about that is that Mariota was pretty much irrelevant only a year or two later. Mm. Tarkington did have a great career, of course, though. He was the MVP in 1975, nine Pro Bowls, was on the 25th and 40th uh, Vikings anniversary teams. Unfortunately, lost three Super Bowls, but had a very good career. The Jim Kelly before Jim Kelly, one could say. September 18th, 1997, three different sets of brothers, Andy and Grant Flower, Brian and Paul Strang, and Gavin and John Rennie, all represented Zimbabwe in the same test match against New Zealand in Harare, the first and only time this has ever happened. To make it even crazier, Zimbabwe's 12th man, Andy Whittle, was the cousin of Guy Whittle, who was also in the playing 11. Grant Flower, who was an amazing player, had a cracking match with scores of 104 and 151, while for the Kiwis, Chris Cairns took five wickets in the first innings and made a crucial 71 not out as New Zealand held on for a draw with just two wickets in hand. We should actually mention here, he's had some really major health troubles lately, mm. so that's been a very hard thing to see. We hope he's okay. The second test was a lot more exciting, ultimately being called a draw with New Zealand needing 11 more runs and Zimbabwe needing two more wickets. They also happened to tie their first ODI of the series, which, I mean, it's very hard to tie an ODI. It it's very rare. It is. Drawing the series one all. And finally, September 20th, 1969, at the Ryder Cup at Royal Birkdale Golf Course in America, the Yanks and Great Britain tie at 16 all, thanks in part to one of the greatest sporting gestures you will ever see. After holding a four-footer with the match all square, America's Jack Nicholas concedes a very missable three-foot putt to Tony Jacqueline at the 18th hole for the draw, saying, I don't think you would have missed it, but I didn't want to give you the chance. Absolutely first class. Mm. This week in sport history. So, Stewie, the US Open has wound up, and as I said, it was a very incredible finish for a number of reasons. No toilet breaks at the end here but we have some finalists and we have some winners. Yeah, it was an amazing tournament. We, we kind of have to go back to before it all started. 
because there was so much talk before this tournament began. There was no Roger, no Rafa, no Stan, no Venus, no Serena. On Donna, on, oh, sorry. And, yeah, well, and no Dominic TM, no Sophia Kanin. How good was this tournament actually going to be? And then it damn well ended up being one of the best and most fascinating US Opens ever. Yep. So in terms of the finals, you could not have asked for a bigger contrast. The men's final saw the number one seed Novak Djokovic take on the number two seed Daniel Medvedev. And the women's final was unseeded Layla Fernandez taking on unseeded qualifier Emma Raducanu. Yes, who needed to win three matches just to get a shot in the first round. Crazy. Crazy. Now, for the record, the only other time in US Open history that two unseeded players have made the final was 1966 when Fred Stolle beat John Newcomb in the All Australian match. Nice, nice. The Nuke. The Nuke. Nice. And that was back when they only had eight seeds as well. Yeah, right. So there was one seed in each part of the eight sections of the draw. So oh, it's nothing short. In, sp- in spite of the fact that there were all those missing names, there were still a lot of big names. There's Barty was there. Osaka was there. There were all sorts of big names. Well, that's it. Sabalenka was there. Svitolina yeah. was there. Oh, the list goes on and on. But it was just nothing short of incredible. And it has to be very close to the youngest combined age of all time in a final too. Well, actually, the youngest final since 1999. So it actually didn't go back as far ah, as I thought. So who was that? Like Hingis and someone? It was Hingis. Um, oh, I've just triviaed myself. Uh, 99. It's pretty fucking obvious. Oh, Serena. Serena. Oh, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So Serena and Hingis both playing as, as younger teenagers and these two. And obviously, we know what happened with Serena. She became probably the greatest female, if not the greatest tennis player of all time. Yes, yes, indeed. And Martina Hingis had a pretty decent career as well. Well, yeah, for many would have thought she was going to be one of the best women mm. players of all time prior to Serena coming through the ranks. And Raducanu became the first qualifier, male or female, to even make a major final, let alone win one. How's this? She has never won a WTA match. Mm. She has never won a WTA match. But she's won a Grand Slam. Yep. It's incredible. Did, did all right. Oh, it's incredible. Well, it's, it's even more incredible to think that three weeks before the qualifying started, she was still finishing school. Yeah. So she's done that. She's come across, had her three weeks of qualifying and then come straight into this tournament. And Unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, this was the absolute fairy tale of fairy tales. So... The first British woman to win a final since Virginia Wade won Wimbledon in 1977. And I think the first one to win the US Open since Wade in like 1968, I think it was. That's a long time. It was just, you couldn't even fathom it coming in that somebody who has gone through qualifying would go through 10 combined matches and not drop a single set. Oh, it's, it's Didn't even go to a single tiebreaker. Yeah, it's astonishing. It's, and, and look, I'll be honest, when everyone was falling in love with her at Wimbledon, I thought it was that typical UK media thing where they kind of pump up the tyres of their local who maybe isn't as good as they think they are, like, you know, maybe think Tim Henman, well, she, who had a great, very good career. She's better. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, she's way off on that one. They're tipping her to be the billion-dollar lady, which is maybe getting a bit far ahead of themselves. She but... is incredibly marketable. Oh, though. well, yeah, I yeah, and she's of, young too. I so. can kind of see where they, they're coming with that. I mean, yeah. she's, yeah, she's got... She's got the smile. She's got all of that. She's got the talent, clearly. Absolutely. So I think in watching her, what impressed me the most about her was probably two or three things. So firstly, her balance on the court. She is probably one of the most balanced players I've seen. Her backhand and forehand, they're both equally solid. So you can't really attack one or the other. She pushes through her serve and her drive through her serve is exceptional. You just, you feel so much confidence in her ability to serve through these big moments. 
in the eight matches that they recorded break point stats, they didn't in the first two of the qualifiers, she was broken a total of eight times. So mm. once, once a match. Once a match, yeah. It's nothing. She broke her opponent 33 times. Well, it happens more in the women's game, which is why eight is so impressive. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I, I spoke last week about how she's a real student of the game. She's just really smart. She thinks her way through things. Every moment of the game, you can see that her mind is ticking over. She's just a joy to watch. And from qualifier to number 23 in the world. Yeah. Amazing. Wow. So she's already jumped to 23. Jumped to 23. And she's never won a WTA match. Correct. That's incredible. She actually went before the qualifying and played a couple of non, non-official non sort of tournaments. I don't know whether it was just to kind of know that she was going to do quite well and get a little bit more match practice. But yeah, it obviously worked really well. Well, nothing's like match practice. No, exactly. Yeah, it's important. And look, not the ending that Layla Fernandez was hoping for. She'll still go up to number 28 in the world. So she's done brilliantly from someone who yeah, was unseated. Wow, wow. She's got a huge future. She was literally a few percentage points off being perfect in the final. Unfortunately for her, Raducanu was pretty much perfect. And it was just that little tiny difference between the two. And it's not often that you see a non-tie break two setter go nearly two hours. Mm. So, yeah, you, you kind of wonder. I think the fatigue maybe got to her a little bit. She played three setters against top 16 players in the third round, fourth round, quarterfinal, and semifinal. Right. She was also playing doubles, so she had three rounds of doubles in there. I think she might have been just a little bit fatigued, but, I mean, she's going to be around for years. And I think these two could be two very much to watch. We could have a new rivalry brewing. I really hope so, mm. because the style of tennis that these two play is just phenomenal. Now, quick fun fact before we get into the men's side of things. We did mention the Serena Williams and Martina Hingis 1999 final. Did you know that Fernandez actually became the youngest player to beat three top five players at a major since Serena beat the one-seed Hingis, two-seed Davenport, and four-seed Monica Seles in 1999? She also beat Kim Clijsters and Conchita Martinez in that run. Wow. Did you know, though, that Conchita Martinez's real name is actually... Immaculada Concepcion Martinez Bernat. So her real first name is Immaculate Conception. She must have a very Catholic family. Pretty random. Yes, interesting. There you go. Mm. So in the men's, we've already mentioned the one and two seeds. This was, yeah, a real shocker. And it's so crazy that a one versus two can be seen as such a a massive upset. But I think everyone kind of thought this was just a a lay down Mazir that he's just going to waltz straight in. Straight sets, just like he always does. But no, <sighs> unbelievable. It's the way that happened that was unbelievable. To, to not even take a set is just, that was a real head scratcher. Yeah. Yeah. So I often speak about how important it is to shine in the big moments, especially in tennis. And it was probably even more important with this one. Obviously, Medvedev got beaten in straight sets by Djokovic at the Australian Open just this year. So, yeah, so he's, he's done really well. Broke him in the first game of the match. He's held serve all the way up to take the first set 6-4. But for me, the biggest moment was actually early in the second set. So Djokovic is held to lead one nothing, And then he's got three break points at love 40 in the very next game. Medvedev holds two aces, an unreturnable serve, and a, and a couple of other points. That manages to win that game. And you could just see Djokovic's spirit just got broken. That was the moment that he usually would break and then all of a sudden he's back in the match. A couple of games later, Djokovic is smashing his racket. The crowd kind of turns against him, which is a little bit unusual. And what do you know? Medvedev breaks the very next game. The very next game. 6-4 in the second. 
two sets to love lead. Not many times you're going to lose from that spot in the final. Medvedev broke twice early as well to go up 3-0 in the third. Now, okay, he double-faulted twice on championship point. He let Djokovic kind of get back into it at 5-4, but he held easily to win. Championship point's probably the hardest one to win, of course, as well. Absolutely. Like they say with closeout games. Yeah. And his reaction to winning, one of the best I've ever seen. He flopped like a fish, but then he explained in the post-match, only legends will understand what I did after that match is an L2 and left. Brilliant. Makes you wonder if he was hoping to win just so he could do that at the end. Yeah. I'm still, it's going to take me weeks to get that song out of my head that they used for the US Open ad. You know that one? Did you see it on Kaya? You probably fast forwarded through it. Yeah, I didn't. Oh, it's been all over ESPN and I've seen everyone flopping on that after, you know, the fish flop. Yeah. Oh, dear. Yeah. But look, this is hopefully the first step in the passing of the torch. It's great to see, obviously, the Medvedevs, the Sverevs, the Sitsipasas, all of these guys coming through. We've had a whole bunch of other guys, Yannick Sinner, Matteo Berrettini, Felix Orger, Aliasim. And then these unheralded guys, Carlos Alcaraz, Lloyd Harris, Botic van der, van der Zanschulp, a lot of really great guys. And this passing of the torch finally feels like it's actually happening. Yes, Joey, the passing of the torch, or in the case of Stefanos Tsitsipas, the passing of his lunch. <laughs> Although actually there were some matches where he went multiple times. So one was the passing of the breakfast and one was the passing of the lunch. And brunch. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, brunch. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So we've got to quickly take a couple of minutes to mention a few of the other really, really awesome achievements from this tournament. Dylan Alcott. Dylan Alcott, unsurprisingly, took out the men's quad singles to complete his golden slam. He continues to look almost unbeatable in the singles. But- by the way, by the way, sorry, this is a bloke that's also won a gold and silver playing wheelchair basketball. So what an athlete he is. Mm. Like he, he moved from basketball where he dominated and then he went and dominated the tennis world. Even, even more. Yeah. So what a great, one of the great Australian sporting legends, mm. it has to be said it already. Is. But there's, there's actually talk he might retire too. Well, he's not going back to the Olympics. Yeah. We have spoken about that. But yeah, yeah he, he can't be too far away. And what makes it even more remarkable is that on the women's side of the wheelchair draw, Didi DeGroote also won a Golden Slam. And what I didn't realise, you told me today, is that she also won the doubles as well. Mm. So that's six titles in one year, Grand Slams plus Olympics. Well, she might so, have won more. We haven't even had a chance to look back and see how she did in the doubles at Wimbledon. The, well, true. Yeah, that's so, really true. That's yeah, really true. Yeah. She absolutely dominates yeah. the world of wheelchair yeah, yeah. and doubles as well couple of other really cool ones. Joe Salisbury of the United Kingdom won the men's doubles with Rajiv Ram. Not without a scare, though, it must be said. They actually uh, nearly got beat in the semifinals by the Australian pair of Matt Ebden and Max Purcell. They ah. only won the third set tiebreaker 12-10. And we'll finish on a, a real, real positive for an Aussie, Sammy Stoza. Oh, yeah, yeah. So she's been through the ringer in Australia with expectations that were blown out of the water by her winning the US Open 10 years ago. She and Zhang Shui, they've managed to take out the doubles. That's her fourth doubles Grand Slam. Absolute hats off. And unfortunately, the media didn't really pick it up over here, did they? That one really went through to the keeper. It really did. To mix my metaphors by bringing up another sport. It's all right. Yeah. That one went into the line judge's neck. Oof. (laughs) Sorry. Oof. (laughs) This is my tennis analysis. I'm just here to say random shit and talk about Sitsipas going to the dunny. Yeah. Welcome. Yeah. Quick, move on. <laughs> so basically, Stoza now just needs Wimbledon for her career Grand Slam in the doubles. She actually, I think it was either, either 2005 or 2006, she actually won her first doubles Grand Slam with Lisa Raymond. It's gone back a long way. I have to say, though, well done, New York. 
another absolute cracker of a tournament and yeah hats off to them for putting on such a great show it is great to have the crowds back and we couldn't do that tennis trivia i teased a few weeks ago because then we talked about it so for the record jimmy connors is the only player to have won on hard court clay and grass at the u.s open all right Stuart, you know what that music means what do you have for well, definitely looking forward to the women's T20 qualifier between Burkina Faso and the disputed zone. <laughs> See if Sundries can top score. That's it. Now, a couple of interesting ODI series coming up, Pakistan and New Zealand, and then Sri Lanka and South Africa squaring off. Also keen to see whether John Milman can defend his Astana Open title in Noor Sultan. How about yourself? Well, I'm very much looking forward to the Brownlow medal, of course, which is always a great recap on the season, but also getting my teeth sunk into the weekend's action of the NFL. I've, at this stage, only seen the first half of the Bills and Steelers, so I'll get cracking on that. Until next week, I'm Nate. And I'm Stu. We are the Sport Blokes.